0: Before we begin, we want to tell you about a live online event on Thursday the 27th of August. It's about an animal with a complex culture, with a mind focused on quality and efficiency, but that was also flexible and creative. This species pioneered new technology and left their mark on history. What what is it, Val?
1: It's the Neanderthals! In this talk, Rebecca rag is going to show how advances in archaeology over the last three decades have revealed a sophisticated picture of Neanderthal culture and the Neanderthal mind. Rebecca is an expert in paleolithic archaeology and stone tool technology and there'll be a Q&A session after the talk. So join me and Rebecca on Thursday, 27th of August for this live online event. Go to newscientist.com slash events to find out more.
0: Hello, welcome to New Scientist Weekly, your friendly neighbourhood guide to the week's most gripping news in the world of science. I'm Rowan Hooper, I'm our podcast
1: editor. And I'm Valerie Jemison, I'm Creative Director of New Scientist Events. On this week's show we're joined by new scientist, all-round legend, Graham Lawton. Hi Graham.
0: Hi, legend. <laughs> <laughs> Coming up on this week's show, there's encouraging news for asteroid miners about the largest object in the asteroid belt. And we're hearing about a new kind of artificial intelligence that's improving medical diagnosis. And we're discussing the difficult question of what happens if and when there's a vaccine for coronavirus.
1: Hmm, Yes, there won't be enough to go around at first. So the big question is, who will be front of the queue? As well as this, we're also hearing about the latest thinking on the end of the universe. Yay! But first, we start with a look at social capital. This is basically a measure of the richness of our social worlds.
0: Yeah, it's not just about the amount of friends we have, it's about the amount of social interactions we have on a daily basis.
1: Yeah, and of course for all of us our stock of social capital has just crashed recently. We're seeing a far fewer people than we used to.
0: Yeah, it's it's been pretty grim. I've I've really missed going into the office and seeing everyone and, and not to mention, you know, friends and family that we haven't been seeing and there 's been a lot of work over the years showing that loneliness because that is effectively that 's what we 're talking about here um, that it has a really big and serious effect on our well being and on our stress and and on things like our performance at work
1: yeah I think we can we can all relate to the fact that we 're missing out on our interactions with friends and colleagues and you know and even shopkeepers and acquaintances um this can have a surprisingly powerful impact on our health and the question is. Really, how has coronavirus impacted on that? I think we can all sense that it has. um, But what is the the real impact? And this is a cover story of the magazine this week by writer David Robson.
0: So we all feel this, we all miss these interactions, but what can science tell us about social capital? And can we mitigate any ill effects?
1: Well, we'll get into that. But first, let's just be clear about what we're meaning here. People with more social capital have lots of friends but as well as that they have more distant acquaintances and they tend to be much more engaged in building their community.
0: Okay and tell us about what we know about how having high social capital helps us. Well
1: there have been loads of studies that have shown that social capital can soothe our stresses and help us live much more healthily and that leads to a lower risk of mental illness and physical disease and a longer lifespan. There's one famous study even found that a lack of social connection presents as large a risk to our health as obesity or even smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day. Whoa. It is a massive, massive deal.
0: Yeah, I mean, those studies are, they, t- they tend to be on people who are totally alone for months or years at a time. But, you know, most of, most of us are on Zoom calls and FaceTime and stuff. And does that plug the gap?
1: Well, not brilliantly, um, which might be a bit of a surprise. So it turns out there are actually three distinct ways that our social capital is leaking away. And the first of these is the loss of what's called shared experience. So we're missing out on lots of joint activities such as cooking and eating together, playing sport. And the very act of doing the same things at the same time appears to create a bond that's just independent of the word spoken.
0: Is there any gender difference here?
1: Well, maybe. So there is one study that followed students during their final year of school and the first year of university, and they asked them about their feelings of emotional closeness to different members of their social network in that time. For women, the study found that regular communication either face-to-face conversations or phone calls or email was really important for keeping their friendships alive but for men it was a continuation of shared activities like sport for example um, that was important. So
0: because we're relying on Zoom and Skype so much at the moment does this mean that men's social relationships are more in danger of breaking down?
1: Mm, It might yes the are other ways our social capital is dissolving as well, and we go into this in much more detail in the magazine story, um, but it's through non-verbal communication, so physical touching.
0: Right, and that's a total no-no at the moment.
1: Yeah, it is. Um, but we now know that touch triggers profound neurological and physiological changes that we just don't seem to get from talking to each other. One of the researchers in the story said that the deprivation of intimate touch during COVID-19 is associated with worse psychological well-being, including feelings of loneliness, anxiety, less emotional tolerance for social isolation and poorer mental health in general.
0: Uh, So everyone could do with a cuddle, basically.
1: Yeah, Yeah, and you can have one. And we've even got advice in the mag on how to do it safely too. Why don't we tweet a link to this story? Basically, you have to plan your hug. So here's how to do it. Right? Avoid face-to-face contact. Use face coverings. Point your faces in the opposite direction. and Don't touch the other person's face or clothing with your face. Wash your hands before and afterwards. And don't exhale during the hug. <laughs>
0: well, yeah, it sounds like a lovely experience.
1: <laughs> I know, it's quite a list, isn't it? Um, but it is worth doing. Uh, touch is so important to us. And we're really missing out on it at the moment.
0: Okay, and what was the third way that we're losing social capital?
1: Mm, Yeah, let's go back to that. The third way is because we might be missing what's called our weak ties. So these are the acquaintances and the fleeting interactions. You know, for example, with a barista or a colleague at the water fountain, people that you don't know very well. Before the pandemic, people had on average between 11 and 16 of these interactions on a typical day. And we might not have thought of them as that important, But their importance to our well-being and work success can't be underestimated. And again, we list some of the reasons in the MAG story.
0: And is there anything we can do about it?
1: Well, one way is to change how we interact with our existing friends. So supposing you used to go to the cinema with a friend regularly. Now, for example, what you could do to try and replicate that is to arrange to watch the film at the same time and then catch up through a video chat afterwards.
0: I quite like that idea, actually. One thing I've found is that I know lots more people in my street now than I used to and I've started chatting with neighbours and people in the park more. I've I've become a bit more friendly actually. Um, Have you guys found this as a tiny little benefit of
2: lockdown? My work from home desk is by a front window and I sort of lean out and have brief chats with my neighbours when they pass by and our house also has this sort of magnificent wisteria on the front that passers-by will stop and look at and I sometimes just lean out and have a little chat. It's actually really nice and it it does feel like a connection that I'm not getting any other way.
1: Yeah, for me, what started out as a um, WhatsApp group in our street has you know, turned into socially distant conversations and things like that. And that's been really nice. And definitely, I find that at the supermarket checkout now um, that I'm chatting to a lot more people. I used to do this all the time in Scotland. You know, everyone's very chatty up here. And I miss <laughs> that when I moved down to England. So I feel as though I'm having a more Scottish experience at the moment. And it's something that I hope that, you know, that, that we'll all continue doing after lockdown. And, you know, research shows that it's really good to forge new ties with people, you know, even these weak ones where you just exchange a few words and every now and then, like, like you say, Graham. So the take home message from this story is to do what you can to reach out to the people you see and even people you vaguely know and make the most of those chance encounters. And I think this is something we we can hope will carry on even after the coronavirus crisis eventually passes, that we have a much greater awareness of the importance of these relationships to the people around us and we do something about it.
0: And be more Scottish, basically.
1: Always be more Scottish. (laughs) (laughs) That's our sci-fi alert. As you know, this is when we've got something in the magazine that's already been in science fiction. What is it this week, Rowan?
0: This week it's about the largest asteroid in the solar system, which is a big rock called Ceres.
1: Big rock? What kind of scientific definition (laughs) of that? It's a dwarf planet.
0: Yeah, actually, it's so big it is classified as a dwarf planet. Ceres is uh, an asteroid in the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. It's 940 kilometres in diameter, so yeah, that makes it a dwarf planet officially, like Pluto. Pluto.
1: What's really cool is that it's big enough for its own gravity to have shaped it into a sphere, unlike all the other asteroids in the asteroid belt, which, you know, look a lot like potatoes or rubber ducks or cigars. But what's the news about it this week?
0: The news is that we've detected salt bound to water molecules on Ceres, which means there's probably an underground ocean inside the asteroid. Uh, and that's because the kinds of hydrated sodium chloride they found is apparently very important for maintaining bodies of liquid water.
1: An underground ocean inside an asteroid. That is so cool. How do we know this?
0: Well, NASA sent a probe there between 2015 and 2018, the Dawn spacecraft. And before the Dawn ran out of fuel, it was orbiting only 35 kilometres above the surface. And it was looking especially at a crater called the Akator Crater, And now analysis of the images shows that there are these salts present. So I was looking at some of these images and they're really quite something, very impressive. I'll tweet them from at Pod.
1: So do we know how much water is in there?
0: Not yet. Uh, Apparently we think the ocean is about 40 kilometres below the surface, so quite deep down, but they do think the ocean is quite large.
1: So potentially very useful if we're going out and exploring space because water is going to be a really precious resource out there.
0: Yep, and that sets me up nicely to the science fiction link. Uh, have either of you seen The Expanse on Amazon Prime or you read the books? No. no.
1: Not on my list, it's on my list.
0: <laughs> yep, okay, well, yeah, I recommend it. It's about the expansion of the human species across the solar system, um, and in particular, people live on Mars and on Ceres. Uh, and in the books, it's by, they're by James S.A. Corey, there are six million people living on Ceres, Uh, People live on other asteroids too, and there's a whole space-based economy around life there. Uh, The people are called Belters, and those who are born in the Belt are physically different to people from Earth or Mars because of the difference in the gravity they experience.
1: So are there any missions going to Ceres at the moment?
0: Not to Ceres right now, but there is a NASA spacecraft called OSIRIS-REx that's uh, surveying another asteroid called Bennu, uh, and there's another mission not yet launched to an incredible metal asteroid called Psyche, People do think that Ceres will eventually be the base for asteroid mining because it's the biggest asteroid in the belt and it will be the hub between crafts mining asteroids and sending minerals to bases on the moon and Mars and Earth. So it could also be a good refueling stop on the way beyond the belt to Jupiter and its moons. Time out, time for our regular reminder of the bargain offer available to you as a listener to our podcast. You can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist magazine by using the code POD20. Go to newscientist.com to subscribe and enter the discount code POD20 at checkout and you'll get access to a whole range of stuff available to subscribers.
1: Yeah, there's loads of premium content, uh, videos, features, interviews, an amazing archive going back years. Pod 20 at checkout or newscientist.com gets you your bargain.
0: Okay, next up, when you think of artificial intelligence, what's the first thing that comes into your head?
1: Uh, AI beating Gally Kasparov at chess.
2: Okay, great. I generally think about the AI transcription service that I use to transcribe interviews, (laughs) which is pretty good, but it sometimes makes kind of hilarious. Mistakes. I once interviewed somebody, an archaeologist, about the hand axe technology of Africa, and it heard that as handbag technology. Oh. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, yeah, well, AI is getting everywhere. Uh, this story is about healthcare. So uh, as you probably know, it's already used a lot. AI is used a lot in medical diagnostics. And the idea here is that the computer looks at all the symptoms presented by a patient and comes up with a diagnosis. And one of the advantages of an artificial intelligence is that it can have access to a massive database of all the symptoms and diseases that you're likely to get or even unlikely to get. So it can be much better resourced than a human doctor. For example, you might get a patient presenting with a shortness of breath. Uh, Typically, an AI system might then link shortness of breath with being overweight and being overweight with having type 2 diabetes, So the AI might then suggest insulin treatment. And that's because shortness of breath is correlated with diabetes. And often this approach works well enough. um, But there are problems because there's no causal link between diabetes and shortness of breath. You know, the the shortness of breath could be caused by asthma. And if you treated an asthmatic patient with insulin, it wouldn't do anything.
1: OK, so AI doesn't sound too good here. What's the better way to do it? Well, a better way, I mean, AI is still
0: good at that. It's just you can make it even better. And a better way is to try and get AI to use causation as the basis of its diagnosis instead of correlation. Uh, And this is something that University College London computer scientists are doing, and we've got a story on it this week. So a causal AI system, it's supposed to more closely mimic the way a doctor diagnoses patients by using counterfactual questioning. So when doctors are learning about symptoms and disease, they don't just learn that symptom A causes disease B. They then look at why it can't be disease C. So in the case before with shortness of breath, you'd ask a question to rule out asthma before you settled on diabetes as the cause of the problem. So that means, you'd, you know, you'd ask counterfactual questions.
1: So no scientists have managed to get an AI doing this sort of reasoning, right?
0: Yeah, that's what they're testing now. They got a group of more than 20 doctors to develop more than 1,600 realistic medical case studies for imaginary patients, and they ended up with these vignettes covering about 350 different illnesses.
1: Do you know this is sounding like the plot line of House?
0: Yeah, it does. So to illustrate (laughs) that, I I picked randomly from hundreds of cases from House, um, and here's one. there's one episode where there's a patient presenting with rapid weight gain, but only around the face and on the back, giving like a moon-faced appearance and a buffalo hump. And, uh, you know, as usual on House, no one knows what it is except Dr. House figures it out and he diagnoses Cushing syndrome, which is a hormonal disorder.
1: So basically House was this genius AI-type doctor who could access all these obscure diseases and link them to different symptoms.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, All right, anyway, getting back to the AI story... Uh, This UCL team created these cases and then gave them to 44 doctors to try to diagnose them. Uh, They also gave them to an old kind of AI that uses correlation and then to this new kind and to see if they could figure out what was wrong. So the real human doctors, they diagnosed the case correctly 71% of the time. The older kind of AI was right 72.5% of the time and the new causative ai was correct 77.3% of the time
1: mm, so it's it's not a massive difference but you know i'm i'm being persuaded by this and i'm assuming that the new ai will get better as well
0: yeah and the new ai outperformed doctors at diagnosing rarer diseases so it is very house like actually uh, and was about 30% better at identifying issues than a standard ai system but the real, you know, the other thing is that an artificial intelligence is never tired. It can work twenty four seven. It can see patients from anywhere around the world,
1: and they don't have an abrasive bedside manner or a Vicodin addiction like house. Yeah. But that point about that point about medical AI working around the the clock and around the world, it's really key, isn't it? Because because of the lack of doctors in so many parts of the world.
0: Yeah. So there's loads of potential here. People might get initially antsy about it I mean well how would you feel about getting diagnosed online by a machine
1: um do you know sorry to bring it back to the pandemic again but you know I I do think that sort of the whole lockdown situation has made me sort of a lot more accepting of video medicine and uh, I'd I'd be you know I'd be up for it
2: I'd be a little bit worried about it making the daft mistake equivalent to hearing hand axes handbags I don't know whether it would do something like that but yeah I think I agree with Val. I mean, am a kind of typical bloke who really won't go to the doctor unless I'm dying, so I can see myself taking advantage of a home diagnostic system.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, machines might actually do a better job. Um, they wouldn't have a bedside manner, but uh, as you say, you wouldn't have to travel to meet it, and you wouldn't have to book an appointment. But look, human doctors are going to be around for the foreseeable future because I, th- I think AI will augment and supplement and boost the role of humans um, but not totally replace them for a while. And, of course, there are many kinds of medical discussions that you actually probably want to have with a human rather than you know coming off your phone in an app, especially stuff that's really life-changing.
1: Okay, so could you eventually train up a machine to the level where it could diagnose more broadly, so be a bit more like your um, GP rather than um, a specialist who has studied skin cancer for years?
0: Yeah, and they're, they're already doing this. So one of my favourite examples comes from China. Uh, maybe it's easier to play with vast amounts of medical history data there. Um, but in one study, a team trained an algorithm on medical records from 1.3 million children who had attended a medical centre. Uh, the record's comprised of medical charts, lab tests and the doctor's notes.
1: So all that information, that gets fed into the algorithm, to the AI?
0: Yeah. The algorithm soaked up all that knowledge as if it itself had seen 1.3 million children. Then it, it gets given new cases that it hadn't encountered. And when, it, when they did this, it was the, the machine was able to diagnose a whole range of diseases glandular fever, flu, chicken pox, hand, foot, and mouth with between 90 and 97% accuracy. It outperformed junior pediatricians and was only bested by more experienced doctors.
1: Wow, those, those are big numbers. Now it's time for a
0: new segment where we take stock of our place in the bigger picture of geological and cosmic time and space. Drum roll, please, Ollie. It's time to look into the total perspective vortex. Val. Wow.
1: Yes, this all comes from some new measurements of our old friend Higgs boson. So Rowan, you'll remember that the Higgs boson is the particle that gives all the fundamental particles their masses, according to our standard model of particle physics.
0: Yeah, it gives us mass, but how is it blasting us into the perspective vortex?
1: Well this week two teams announced that they'd spotted the Higgs boson decaying into two particles called muons for the first time.
0: Muon. Muons.
1: Yep, muons. (laughs) So in the world of particles, these are sort of featherweights. Um, They're actually a big component of the cosmic radiation that uh, comes down to us from uh, space. Um, But muons are these featherweight particles. They're about a ninth the mass of the protons. And because they're so light and Higgs is all about mass, it means that only two in every 10,000 Higgs bosons will eventually decay into muons. It's something that physicists have been hoping to observe for absolutely ages.
0: Right, and let me guess, they've found now that the Higgs has decayed just like the standard model said it would, which is just like our current best descriptor of physics.
1: Yes, I am afraid so. And that's the really maddening thing about this. Physicists are desperate for something, anything, not to agree with the standard model because it might help explain massive problems like dark matter or dark energy or quantum gravity. We're looking for some anomalies.
0: Well, I'm very sad for the physicists, but I'm not yet feeling the perspective vortex valve.
1: Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's get on to that now. So, so one of the big questions in physics is, well, why are the masses of the fundamental particles the way they are? Why are the constants of nature, like the speed of light, for example, the way that it is? You know, at the moment, these numbers are just plonked into physics. You know, you have to learn them at school or at university. But if you stop and say, well, hang on a minute, why is the speed of light the speed that it is? Or why is the mass of the proton the way it is? We have absolutely no idea.
0: So could they be different?
1: Yeah, though we wouldn't be here to see them. So atoms wouldn't be able to form if the forces were different strengths. And the Higgs has a really important role to play here. Potentially, the way the Higgs works and the the way it gives other particles their masses could... Instantaneously flip in a quantum fluctuation, and every atom in the universe would blow apart. And the thing is, the entire universe exists on this knife edge where this could happen.
0: Are you? Is this for real? That some random fl- flip could destroy the entire universe?
1: Yes, <laughs> yes. So I heard it this week when I hosted an online event with cosmologist Katie Mack. She was talking about how the Higgs could spell doom for the universe.
0: Right. Um, and how likely is that to happen? Do I need to be worried?
1: <laughs> well, Katie was very careful to point out that there are plenty more things to be worried about, especially right now. But our current measurements of the Higgs mass indicate that we're on the right on the borderline of the universe being completely stable, where, you know, atoms will be fine and none of this will happen and on this knife edge. And so that's certainly got me thinking that it's worth understanding the Higgs a lot, lot better.
0: Look, great. When I'm not worrying about coronavirus or climate change, I can remind myself that the existence of the entire universe is resting on a knife edge.
1: Yeah, actually, I sometimes find that, you know, a reminder of our cosmic insignificance can really help put our real-world worries into perspective. And if you want to find out more about the end of the universe, go to newscientist.com to get details on how you can watch Katie's talk.
0: Turning to the coronavirus, as we usually do at some stage, the quite horrendous headline figure is that we have more than 20 million cases worldwide now and over 740,000 deaths. But there is some interesting vaccine news good interim results in a US trial of an RNA vaccine. um, And in Russia, a vaccine has already been approved, apparently by skipping most of the usual trials. Um, Graham, you've been looking forward to what it will mean if and when we do get a vaccine approved. It's worth saying if and when because we still don't know
2: whether we will get a vaccine but there has been some really positive progress and there's cautious optimism that one might be ready to roll out by early 2021 and of course that sounds like excellent news and it's true that a vaccine is our best hope of getting back to normal. Okay and what's the but? The problem is that, barring some unforeseen breakthrough, there won't be enough vaccine to go around. There are something like 7.5 billion people in need of a vaccination, but perhaps only a billion doses available in the first six months of production.
1: Right, so who gets one first? How do we decide? How are governments drawing up lists? Are they doing this already?
2: They are doing it already, and everyone agrees that frontline healthcare workers must be first in the queue. But then who should be next? Um, And there are some other big questions too. So what's the best strategy for attaining herd immunity? Will people even accept the vaccine? And probably the biggest one of all is, is it going to be possible to stop rich countries from hoarding all the supplies? And the answer to these questions actually depend largely on decisions that are being made right now. And of course, a vaccine may never arrive, but let's assume it does So maybe the first thing to deal with is why there won't be enough to go around straight away. And this is largely down to manufacturing capacity. Making vaccines is a laborious business. Okay, To put it into perspective, to immunise everyone, we're going to need at least 8.6 billion doses and possibly twice as many as that if it's a two-shot vaccine.
1: Why 8.6 billion for 7.5 billion people?
2: A boring reason, really. I mean, there's always going to be some (laughs) wastage. Uh, the World Health Organization reckons you need to add about 15% to take that into account. So anyway, let's put, get some more perspective on 8.6 billion. So the largest amount of vaccine that's ever been made, a single vaccine in a year, is half a billion doses. That's of the polio vaccine. The world's biggest vaccine manufacturer is the Serum Institute of India, and that produces a total of about 1.5 billion doses of various vaccines in a year and the most ambitious covid-19 vaccine manufacturing plan to date is for just 2 billion doses in a year so pretty much whatever happens demand is going to outstrip supply so tough choices have to be made so who's who is going to get it So anyway, as I was saying, decisions are being made now, and various bodies, including the World Health Organization, the UK Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation, and the US Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, have all looked into this already and made some preliminary recommendations. And though obviously they're working on very incomplete information, uh, they all came to essentially the same conclusion, that health and care workers must be first, vulnerable elderly people second, other Vulnerable adults. Third, that's people with underlying health conditions, and everybody else has to go to the back of the queue. If you do that globally, you've pretty much used up all your first batch of vaccine and then some.
1: So, what about herd immunity that we keep on hearing about?
2: Yeah, now that's a really interesting one. So, none of the existing plans mention it, which baffled me at first. And I, but it turns out there's a really good reason for that. You know, there is a widespread assumption that vaccines automatically mean herd immunity, but often they don't. They can do, but that's just a happy accident if they happen to stop transmission. But, you know, vaccine clinical trials are not designed to test whether the vaccine stops transmission. They're designed to test whether vaccines prevent severe disease and death in people who receive them. So herd immunity is not part of vaccine trials and so is not part of any plan yet. I mean, we may get lucky and we may find that a successful vaccine, and again, I will reiterate that we don't have one yet, we may find that that vaccine stops transmission and can therefore induce herd immunity. And if so, then the priority plans may need to be revised. I mean, the best strategy at that point might be to prioritise children, for instance, or people with wide social networks, or teachers, or people who work in hospitals, or people who work on public transport, for example. And then you get herd immunity and everyone's protected.
0: What are some of the other unknowns at the moment?
2: Yeah, there are lots of unknowns. I mean, vaccine hesitancy, as the people who work in this area sort of delicately call it, is one. Uh, That means people, that's basically anti-vax sentiment, and that seems to be on the up. There are anti-vax voices on social media, vastly outnumbering pro-vaccine voices, and that obviously has implications for herd immunity. And the other really biggie is vaccine nationalism.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask about this. So let's say, for example, the US, let's say they do get a vaccine working and they scale it up. You know, they might want to keep all of it over there like they have with the treatment. Exactly right. And there's already
2: signs of this rearing its ugly head. I mean, that Russia announcement earlier this week, bizarre announcement, uh, was basically vaccine nationalism. And the US has uh, an explicitly America first vaccine development program called, and I kid you not, Operation Warp Speed. Oh. Uh, it's a kind of pure all name for a really serious project but as one researcher i spoke to pointed out to me uh, the us's response to the pandemic thus far has unarguably been the worst of any rich country you know it didn't even get the public health basics right so it's a pretty much a leap of faith to say it's going to be able to roll out a vaccine before the end of the year and I, you know i kind of assume that's
0: why it's called operation warp speed because it's science fiction <laughs> That's all for this week. Thanks for joining us, Graeme, and thanks to you for listening. Remember, as a podcast listener, you can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist by using the code POD20 at checkout.
1: We'd love you to spread the word about our show, so do urge your friends and family to subscribe. We're on Twitter at New Scientist Pod, and you can email us at podcasts at newscientist.com. Until next time, take care and goodbye. Bye.